The birth of a child often renews the hope of our human spirit. In the Bible, Moses is born to deliver his people from Egypt. Remember that? And it renewed their hope. They were looking for a deliverer. Later, when Israel longed for a word from the Lord, Samuel is born and renewed prophecy. When the kingdom was disintegrating under the rule of Saul, God gave a son to Jesse. His name is David to restore the kingdom. And when Athaliah sought to destroy, she she was a, a wicked, evil lady. And the way she thought to put her son on the throne is to kill everybody else who might threaten. I, what a mama she was. But Athaliah sought to destroy the line of David's throne, and Joash is born to rescue. Finally, when Herod would kill any child that threatened his throne, Jesus is whisked away until the threat passed. Now, in spite of Satan's attacks and the disobedience of God's people, He always kept hope alive and fulfilled the promise of a Redeemer. As the old hymn repeats, My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. My dear friend, even as we see the world drifting further, well, I'm not sure they're drifting anymore. The world has taken a hard, hard turn further and further away from God, may I just remind you, don't lose hope. God is sovereign. He will accomplish His purpose despite the evil in our land. Seth renews that hope in our Lord. And then we come to Enosh. You may say Enos in your Bible. It's the same as Enosh in other places. And we hear him for the first time evidently calling upon the Lord. So back in chapter 4, again, we're introduced to him at verse 26. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men, then at his birth, after his birth, began men to call upon the name of the Lord. It's as if they began to have their hope renewed. Now there is a revival that comes. This is a remarkable thing that is recorded here for us in connection with the birth of Enosh, apparently for the first time. I mean, there must have been a sense of God, right, from the time of Adam who spent time in the cool of the day. There's a sense of a creator. They're they're not far removed from it. But for the first time, they call upon the name of the Lord by name, the Lord God. There seems to be a revival of sorts. And while Cain's descendants, remember Cain? Remember his descendants? They went off to the land of Nod. Remember that? They built cities. Remember they were great inventors? All of that, right? But as they moved off to the cities and created those establishments, uh, they left in their wake a great dearth of biblical understanding. But in the wake of Cain's descendants and all they had accomplished, the descendants of Seth were the ones giving glory to the name of the Lord. Now remember that, because we'll see an intermingling of this later. And if you're keeping track, the father of Enosh, remember, is Seth. Seth, remember, was the third in line from Adam, and Seth is now 105 years old when Enosh is born. Chapter 5, pick it up with verse 6. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enosh. And Seth lived after he begat Enosh 
807 years, and he begat sons and daughters. So there's others that are born. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and what does it say? And he, he died. Let me give you one more, verse 9. And Enosh lived nine, uh, excuse me, 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enosh lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. I don't know if you know it yet or not. There's only two things certain in life, right? Taxes, well, and, and death, right? Death and taxes. Well, the name Enosh is a recognition of the frailty and weakness of man left to himself. That's the sense of his name. This is the condition of man apart from God. Every time God's people drift into idolatry, God confirms his remnant of those who call upon the Lord in their day of trouble. For example, after the flood, what do we find Noah and his family doing? Calling upon the Lord. When the prophet Elijah thought he was all alone, remember, that, remember when he got a little whiny? He said, oh, I'm all alone, I'm nobody else. You know. Remember, God opened his eyes and he saw something like 7,000 other faithful men and women. The author of Psalm 119 recognized he was part of a faithful remnant. The prophets all wrote about a believing remnant in their day, and Isaiah even named one of his sons, Shear Jeshub, Isaiah 7, which means a remnant shall return. And a remnant did indeed return following the Babylonian captivity. They rebuilt the temple, restored Jerusalem, established the Jewish nation again. Warren Wiersbe asked this, how many men, sounds like a, it's going to be a joke, right? But it's not. How many men does God need to get his job done? Remember in Sodom, in Sodom he said, just give me ten. That'll do the job. Just give me ten. Couldn't even find that. In the early church, something like 120 believers empowered by the Holy Spirit turned the world upside down. Paul evangelized throughout the entire Roman Empire with just a few devo devoted men and women and everywhere just two or three or 35 people gather in the name of the Lord who is sure to be there. The Lord Jesus is sure to be in the presence, just two or three. Now, I'm not a discourager of great works. I don't mean to suggest that. But it seems that more often than not, the Lord's name is proclaimed more clearly in small gatherings, in remnant gatherings, who are called by the Lord, and we call upon his name without apology. Jonathan, you may recall, who alone stood against his father, King Saul. Jonathan said in 1 Samuel, the Lord will do his work for us. There's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. The Lord can do his work. And the Lord challenged Jeremiah, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which you don't yet know. And here for the first time people began calling upon the Lord. It's as if they see the world going downhill quickly and they are calling upon God to save them. Now so far we've met Seth hoping in God. We've met Enosh calling upon God. Now 
Enoch. Enoch walking with God. Now in verses 12 down through verse 18, there's a list of names that aren't going to make anybody's top five list of descendants. And, and unlike Joe, Joe practiced all the names he read this morning in Sunday school. I didn't practice any of these names. You can read them for yourself, verses 12 down through verse 18. I'm not going to even attempt it. But each of them is important in the sense of a seed that will continue from Seth all the way through the descendants until we come to that little town of Bethlehem. These are the generational links from Adam's replacement son all the way to Jesus. We're introduced to Enoch in a turning point of his life. It's the same time, now I, I say men, but I suppose ladies as well, but it's the same time that many men discover a side of themselves they didn't know. It's when they're holding their first born child in their arms. Men, do you remember that? You were never the same after that, were you? Everything changed. And to that end, read verse 21, chapter 5 still, Genesis 20, or chapter 5, beginning of verse 21. And so Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. Now that's a name you remember. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. So after the birth of Methuselah, he began walking with God. 300 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years, and Enoch walked with God, and he he was not. I don't know about you, but I'm hoping this verse is written on my tombstone, which I, I won't even be here, I don't care, but I would love to think of the idea of uh, death does not scare me. Dying kind of bothers me. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I would love to be of the generation that walks with God and simply was not. Right? So, I'm off track. Let's get back. Genesis chapter 5 back to verse 23. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, and Methuselah, he lived on 187 years and begat Lemek, and Methuselah lived after he begat Lemek, 780 and two years, and he begat sons and daughters in all the days of Methuselah. I don't know, I don't want to live this long. Right? 960 and nine years, and he died. Now, what Enoch was like in his younger years, so before the birth of his first son, I really can't say with any certainty. I'm just going to make an assumption as a young man living in a world that is increasingly wicked. He was probably caught up in some of the things that were true of the general population, not all of it. But Enoch was surrounded by and likely caught up in many of the ways of the world leading up to the days of Noah, and we know what that was like. And then, while holding his first child, his heart is pierced in a way that he's never known before, and he names his child, a name you're never going to use, but he names his child Methuselah. 
Methuselah means hit the mark like a dart or a spear. And his heart was pierced like it had never been pierced before. And he began to realize things that were important that he never thought about before, just like many of you did when you held that first child in your arms. But Methuselah, his name doesn't mean as much to us as probably just this, wait a minute, he lived how long? Right, the longest recorded, 969 years old. In fact, when you line up the generational record, and we'll do this on Wednesday night, I have a little chart I'll give you. You line up the generational record of Methuselah to Enoch's grandson, who's that? Noah. It becomes evident that Methuselah lived right up until the time of the flood. I don't think he died in the flood. He was a godly man, but... But apparently he lived right up until the time, maybe the day before the first drop of rain fell. I don't know, but he lived a long time and he certainly heard his grandson Noah preach. But back to our text and the thing that we know for certain from the days of Adam's first sin and which is true in every next generation that we read, that little phrase, and he died. Then we come to this man, Enoch, who walked with God and then was no more. I like what the New Living Translation says. It simply says, he walked with God and then he disappeared. Just disappeared. Like, where did he go? God took or literally carried him away. Now take this and move it forward into the New Testament. And you have now a beautiful picture of the rapture, caught away. There is a striking parallel of Enoch's pre-flood rapture with the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I am not saved to go through the tribulation. The church will be raptured out. This is a beautiful illustration of that pattern there in Enoch walking with God and then was simply caught away. We the church walking with God and one day soon will be caught away. Prior to God unleashing his judgment upon the earth, he called away Enoch and one day now, perhaps very soon, he may call away believers before unleashing his final judgment upon this earth. Matthew 24 tells us it'll be a great time of tribulation such as was not since the beginning of time or ever again. To that end, consider Enoch's example who believed God, walked with God, and finally went to be with God. Remember, these were the dark days leading up to the flood when it came down to just one family left still walking with God. Enoch walked with God, which should be a testimony to us all that it is possible, it is possible, even in the day in which we live, to do what Philippians chapter 2 tells us, to be blameless, harmless, sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The wickedness of our world is not the time to give up and lay down and say, well, you know, it's just all going to happen. What's it matter? I'm just going to stay home and worship God on my television today. Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, 
and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day of judgment. Now in these first generations of Adam, we've witnessed Seth hoping in God, Enosh calling upon God, Enoch walking with God, and finally, I'm going to introduce to you Noah relying upon God. Chapter 5, and then we bleed over into chapter 6, but chapter 5, verse 28, and Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name, there he is, Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because the ground on which we, we were seeking to farm and raise, it's been cursed. So they're going back to the original sin. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah, 590 and five years, and he begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll be introduced to them again. And we've heard the name of Noah's father before, Lamech. There are two of them in scriptures here that we've come through in a couple of chapters. The first was Cain's family tree, the first Lamech was the polygamist, remember that? He had two wives. He apparently also killed two men. And then he thought he would brag about it, thought he was getting away with it. That's, that's the Lamech of Cain, that's not this Lamech. In Seth's family tree, Lamech is the father of Noah, who was used of God to save the human race and carry on the lineage of the promised Redeemer, Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Noah's birth comes at a time of great concern. Chapter 5, verse 29, we saw it, I read it. This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because the ground is cursed. Noah's name means rest. It implies comfort. I mean, where do you rest? You rest in comfort, right? We rest. What we will come to know of Noah's world makes his name all the more significant. Matthew Henry calls it a calamitous state of human affairs. His father speaks as one fatigued with the business of life, and he names his son Noah, because we need rest. Caught up in what we might call the rat race. Anybody still in that rat race? You know how it is, right? Spending more and more time just to eke out a living, an existence in what we are seeing increasingly of a sin-cursed world, earth. And remember, the people we're reading about here are 6,000 years closer to the day of perfection than we are. Their earth was before the upheaval of the flood. They enjoyed even greater access to natural resources than us. Part of the problem of modern politics and philosophy alike is the thought that man is inherently good and given the opportunity will always improve on his condition. But my dear friend, man can never save himself and worse yet, left to himself and left to his own devices, he will only ever grow increasingly ungodly. There's no comfort to be found in this present world, and our concern today should be the same as it was then. Sin lieth at the door. There's evil in the heart of a person, any person, 
without God. No law ever made, no amount of money ever spent will be able to control man's propensity for sin. Noah's birth was at a time of great concern. It's also at a time of compromise. Now for that, I'm going to read chapter 6, the first few verses. So it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were fair, beautiful. And they took to them wives. They're following now in this polygamous pattern we've seen before, all of which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only ever evil continually, and it repented the Lord. Can you imagine what God has done, what God has created, what God has laid down, and it all started out with one rule, just one. Can you imagine being the parent of this generation, what it's come to? It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and fowls of the air, and it repented me that I have made them. Satan will not be mentioned, he's not mentioned here, and he will not be mentioned again in the book of Genesis. We only heard him mentioned up until chapter 3. Remember that Evangelium passage, and he won't be mentioned again. Satan, however, is not about to take this lying down, and so this deceiver and father of lies is busy working every angle he possibly can to do what? Kill off the seed, the seed of the promise of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. From the beguiling of Eve and all through the centuries of Jewish descendants, Satan seems to know that he cannot conquer the Lord. It's as if he knows, like he's not stupid. He knows. But perhaps he can corrupt the bloodline sufficiently so as to ruin God's redemptive plan. That's what's happening all the way down through the centuries. He's just trying to to poison the bloodline, the seed. Remember chapter 4, verse 7. Sin lies at the door, and Satan's preferred place of attack is always closest to home. Always. And Satan, his preferred means of corruption is compromise. It's never an outright lie. It's We would recognize that, right? I mean, if he came to us, we're smart enough, we've been in church long enough, we'd recognize an outright lie. 
but just simply the temptation to do what we imagine is right, but in a way that God never intended. Compromise. And to that end, what did Satan do in the days of Noah? Did he invade with asexual, angelic beings from which we get superhuman giants living in the land? I don't think so. We could talk more about it on Wednesday night. I don't think so. Fantastic speculations have been made about these verses. But may I just simply say, because we'll see Nephilims again. We'll see, we'll see giants again. May I just suggest we take it at face value? The first reading of it and the face value of it and the truth that is apparent and true before us, if we read this in any other context, we would simply conclude that godly men married ungodly women. That's exactly what's happening. Specifically, men of Seth's descendants followed the polygamous pattern of Cain's descendants. And the word fair that's used there in verse 2, your Bible may simply say beautiful. But it's not just beautiful. It says there, they were more beautiful. More beautiful than what? More beautiful than the women of Cain. Now, this doesn't mean that Cain's brides were, you know, that the women of Cain's descendants were ugly. That's not the point. But they they were beautiful, but these women. Right? Exactly. You know what I'm saying. These women... Remember, Cain was the closest in his generations to perfection. And his family would have had some beautiful men and, of course, some beautiful women. Well, I'm sure that these women not only were beautiful, but they wore the seductive clothing of Cain's sophisticated society in the land of Nod. To put it bluntly, the godly men of Seth swam in the deep gene pool of Cain, and they produced some pretty great men and women. In the Hebrew, These giants are called Nephilim. This same name is going to show up again, so don't tell me that more angels drop down later on. Occupying the promised land, later they do battle with David. God then pronounces now judgment upon the earth, not because of the invasion of angels, but because, as it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man's heart, that it was only ever evil continually. For 120 years then, what do we find Noah doing? I don't think he's building the ark for 120 years. I think they were more advanced than that. I don't think it was like, yeah, we just, I got nothing to work with here, so it's going to take me 120 years to build this thing. I think they're way more advanced than that. We can, again, have more conversation on Wednesday night, but for 120 years, what is he doing? He's preaching repentance. He's preaching repentance. And he's preaching that they need the Lord Jesus. Everything surrounding the story of Noah is an illustration of the time in which we live. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited as in the days of Noah, 120 years, while the ark was a preparing 
wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. This 120 grace, grace period, this 120 year grace period is lived by faith in anticipation of the preparation for coming judgment, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 being a great faith chapter. Noah is listed there. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, we've not seen this before, moved with fear and prepared the ark to the saving of his house. Every person ever saved from the curse of sin has been saved by grace, through faith. Ephesians 2 8, you know, for by grace are you saved through faith. So 120 years of grace through the expression of faith and things she hasn't yet seen. For by grace through faith we are saved. It's the gift of God. My dear friend, let me take verse 8 and turn it into a question. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The question, have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord?